Welcome to Rotting Our Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, for the past 48 hours, my brain has been on fire, transfixed by a groundbreaking new theory. Professor Richard Rangham argues that councils of elder males enforced patriarchy in the Middle Pleistocene over 300,000 years ago. Is he right? Well, let's delve in. So, let me outline Rangam's theory. Our nearest relatives, Caterini monkeys and apes, are dominated by a singular alpha male. Having physically defeated all others, he becomes an unpunishable polygynous free rider, fathering a large share of the offspring. Since the most aggressive male had greatest reproductive success, evolutionary selection amplified aggression. This is a truly Habesian state of nature, a war of all against all. Chimpanzees are over a thousand times more violent than humans. Then, 300,000 years ago, during the Middle Pleistocene, humans became increasingly smart, savvy, communicative, and coordinated. Exploiting that improved language, beta males conspired to kill despotic tyrants. They forged alpha alliances and thereafter maintained hegemony by murdering aggressive bullies. The absence of private property did not make hunter-gatherers egalitarian. Rather, these new alpha alliances ostracized and eliminated reactive aggression. This then enabled a virtuous circle of trust, cooperation, linguistic evolution, and moral communities. Members of the Alpha Alliance were evenly matched egalitarians. The winner-takes-all polygyny began to wane. The rise of monogamous pair bonding likely triggered shifts in sexual selection. Men attracted desirable mates by signalling paternal investment, while women competed for generous providers. This alpha male alliance could have propagated laws that served their interests, like men must eat first, uh, female adultery is immoral. Ranga maintains that even if some wives dominate their husbands, all societies have this institutional patriarchy. Hence, to truly understand patriarchy, we must focus on how it has been legally institutionalized by the Alpha Alliance the world over. Ha! Is this plausible? Well, it does explain a number of unique features of humans, namely prosociality, intergroup cooperation, low reactive aggression, and indeed institutionalized patriarchy. Can it be confirmed empirically? Well, no. I mean, writing was only developed in 3400 BC. There is no available evidence about moral codes in the Middle Pleistocene. We do not know whether norms were necessarily patriarchal, nor whether they emerged through top-down enforcement. A growing body of evidence suggests an alternative hypothesis, that cooperation was encouraged by religious rituals and fear of supernatural punishment. Next question. Is Rangam correct to focus on the universality of institutional patriarchy? No. This premise is not correct. Our world is marked by considerable heterogeneity. The most patriarchal societies in the world today have a strong preference for female seclusion, 
Women are then tightly policed and their networks remain weak. So the fundamental question, for me at least, is not why are all societies patriarchal, but why does some idealise seclusion? Over the past 10,000 years, I argue, there have been three major waves of patriarchy. These include conquests, such as by Yamnaya steppe pastoralist, the emergence of inherited wealth amid insecurity, and male organised religions, especially Islam. The stronger the reliance on kinship, as well as the greater concern for purity, the stricter the surveillance inhibiting women's freedoms and friendships. So, contrarangum, patriarchy was not imposed by elites, but also emerged as a result of what I call the patrilineal trap, marriage markets, and ever so many boys' clubs. Rangam also overstates the universality of patriarchy. African women often maintained powerful alliances. And I'll go into all of this. So let me give you an example of Song China, which saw a step change in the increase of female seclusion. So under the Song dynasty, mothers began to break their daughters' feet. This was not mandated. So why did they do it? Well, one, Confucianism became more widespread. It formed the basis of the meritocratic civil service exam. Scholars praised chaste women who confined themselves to the inner quarter and sacrificed themselves for male honour. And those texts became increasingly affordable thanks to printing. Patrilineal kinship was another important catalyst. The Song dynasty heralded booming commerce, urban expansion and upward mobility. The gentry could only survive the turbulence of meritocracy, partable inheritance and violent attacks by pooling resources within their lineage. Extended families bound together to finance their son's education. Chinese families ensured that close-knit cooperation by praising filial piety, eulogizing their ancestors and compiling genealogy books. Patrilineal purity then became increasingly paramount. Women bore sons to perpetuate their husband's lineage. And since the paternity of sons must never be in doubt, the slightest hint of sexual activity by a woman outside the confines of marriage constituted a threat to the sexual order. So the entire sense of honour and shame became bound up in women's sexual propriety. And families then competed over ideal grooms, who all wanted chaste brides, by hobbling their daughters, binding their feet, and offering ever more generous dowries. Women in northern China retreated from the public sphere. Paintings of Kaifeng's uh, bustling city streets show porters, innkeepers, monks, traders, but the conspicuous absence of women. In poetry, women shied from public view or else they were pilloried by male critics. Anonymous wall writings convey their sadness, anxiety and abuse. So, as we can see from this one example, Confucian patriarchy was enforced by an alpha male alliance, just as Rangam theorizes. But China also became caught in what I call a patrilineal trap. Families tightly restricted their wives and daughters in order to maintain honour, prevent gossip and improve their marriage prospects. Since no family wanted to deviate from that norm unilaterally, all were trapped in a negative feedback loop. And women competed, and women across the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, compete over grooms by offering guarantees of paternal certainty, foot binding, female seclusion, nuptial virginity tests and infibulation. They're all caught 
in this patrilineal trap because male honor is contingent upon female seclusion. Most women thus remain at home, unable to form independent alliances. Let me add two more points. Boys clubs. So Rangam theorizes that it's, it's largely due to this top-down enforcement. But that overlooks the multitude of patriarchal networks at every level of society. European guilds and trade unions were no aristocrats, but they still organized to kick women out. Within Hinduism's caste system, there is a hierarchy of upper and backward castes. Brahmins certainly idealized seclusion, but they were not the only enforcers of patriarchy. All jati panchayats disciplined female sexuality to preserve endogamy, trust and cooperation. Disobedient families might be fined or outcast. In the USA, college men are more likely to deny a perpetrator's guilt if he's in their fraternity. A meta-analysis of college athletics and fraternities finds that male members are more likely to believe rape myths and self-report sexual aggression. It's a boys' club. Top-down enforcement is not the only game in town. Now, here is my most important point. Female seclusion is not universal, and it's female seclusion that we should try to explain and understand. Cultural evolution has been mediated by oceans, mountains, and parasites. Impregnable parts of the Americas, Gulf of Guinea, Southeast Asia, and Southern Africa never idealized female seclusion. Sub-Saharan Africa was characterized by land abundance and labor scarcity. Setsefly regions remained inhospitable to both cattle and Islam, which spread amongst pastoralists. So there was no inherited wealth nor cult of female seclusion. Prosperity depended on control over labor. Women continued to move freely, exercise authority, build independent alliances, and propagate folklore that glorified their powers. Bonding together, women traversed great distances as traders. Portuguese records suggest that many independently wealthy women marshaled their own networks, commercial human and linguistic skills to thrive in coastal exports. The Ashanti, Igbo, Yoruba maintained dual sex systems of governance. Markets were controlled by women who set the laws and punished wrongdoers. Igbo and Bakweri women harassed men for mistreating their wives, violating market rules or harming their crops. When Ethiopian um, Emperor Susensios embraced Catholicism, royal women staged an armed insurrection. They rejected this patriarchal religion. In 19th century Congo Brazzaville, a husband would not even take a, an egg from her chicken coop without permission from his wife. In southern Nigeria and Côte d'Ivoire, women marshaled their independent networks to mobilize en masse against imperialism. Female fertility was also revered. I suspect this stems from both perennial demand for labor and also powerful female alliances. A girl's first period was celebrated. Women were respected as creator gods, goddesses, priestesses, oracles, deities, and queen mothers. Cosmology upheld gender complementarity. Now let me add a caveat. Coercion 
remained a constant threat. Across sub-Saharan Africa, vulnerable women were pawned, captured in raids, betrothed to cement alliances, or persecuted as witches. The king of Dahomey was guarded by powerful women, but this was no feminist utopia. He profited from domestic slavery, he dispensed patronage by redistributing wives, and Dahomey Alpha alliances in each community permit all unmarried men to rape public whores. That probably reduced resentment of their own polygamous hoarding. So labour scarcity in sub-Saharan Africa meant that some women were enslaved, while others could leverage these powerful alliances. Right, so let me synthesise. Richard Rangham has advanced this groundbreaking new argument. He seeks to explain the universality of institutional patriarchy. But I think this premise is incorrect. Our world is marked by a great gender divergence. Alpha alliances are strongest in cultures where family policing inhibits women's collective resistance. So, if we want to understand contemporary patriarchy, we really need to identify the historical drivers of female seclusion. Are you with me? Well, I'm Dr. Alice Evans, and I hope I've rocked a few priors. Take care.